My name is Simon Luckhurst and this is Season 2 of Ear Movies, Conversations with Buckthumper. This is the final story episode of Season 2. There were only going to be seven episodes, but then COVID hit. I had Tyriel Mora lined up to read Conversations with Buckthumper, but we couldn't get him into a studio. Darren, who eventually read it, has a home studio, so we recorded it that way. But I'd heard Tyriel's voice in my head, so I wrote this story for him to read. The inspiration from the story came not from a disappearing magician, but just the concept of a talent agency for people who are really good at something that probably has no intrinsic value to society. I've met a few of them over the years, and some are represented in this story. As for Tyriel, well, if you've seen Frontline or The Castle, you'll instantly recognise his voice. When I listen to him, I hear a deep resonance that somehow manages to contain a mixture of simultaneous irony, frustration and wonder. It works really well for the great Mantini. I hope you like it. poke around the back streets of Camberdown, you'll find a few old corner shops. The ones that used to sell bread, milk, cans of food, old apples and ten-cent bags of mixed lollies. Even newspapers. Remember newspapers? Many have been converted for other purposes now. Some sell real estate, designer furniture and art. A lot of private homes. A few have become both shops and houses. Not far off Salisbury Road, there's one that's a talent agency at the front and a residence at the rear. Marco Ryan had big hopes for the agency when he opened it. His mother was Italian. His father was a no-good disappearing asshole, at least according to his mother. Marco had never met him and quickly learned not to ask about him. He grew up playing cricket in the back streets. He saw the Newtown Jets play football more than once. Sometimes he and his mother would buy vegetables from Paddy's market. It was a mass of people shouting out prices. He and his mother would catch the bus home with bags of produce. One day at Circular Quay, when he was about 13, Marco saw a rabbit charmer. He'd read about snake charmers in India, but had never heard of a rabbit charmer. This man could make his rabbits do anything. They sat at a small table, sipping tea. They ran a race with mice as jockeys. They could do push-ups. Marco was astounded. He thought about the man for weeks. 
He went back to the quay, but he never saw him again. A few years later, he came across an article in an old post magazine. It was the sad story of a man with a talent for something that wasn't appreciated. Eventually, he'd abandoned both his bunnies and his showbiz dreams. He'd become an alcoholic and gone into politics. High school didn't trouble Marco, but it didn't inspire him either. He did well enough that his mother encouraged him to study more, but not well enough that any of the universities wanted him. He applied for a couple of newspaper jobs, which he didn't get, and then drifted into marketing. He surprised everyone by finding a job with Walton's, then a large department store chain. He befriended Huan Chen, who was in the typing pool. It looked like both his relationship and his career were heading in the right direction when Walton's went bankrupt. Then his mother died, and while a source of great sadness, it also resolved his economic situation. She'd left him enough to buy a house or to start a small business. The purchase of an old shop in Camberdown meant he was able to do both. He couldn't afford to employ Juan, so he kept seeing her and she performed light secretarial duties. She had a huge old Olivetti typewriter they'd smuggled out of her office, along with a few boxes of carbon paper. She lived with her parents but visited him every day. On a trip to the south coast, he was startled by a rabbit leaping out of some lantana. The animal reminded him of the man he'd seen all those years before. I know what kind of business I want, he told Juan the next day. Profitable, I hope, she said. She was very practical. Marco set up a talent agency. Rather than seeking the next singing or acting sensation, though, he focused on people with unusual or surprising talents, like the rabbit charmer. He put ads in the Daily Mirror and waited. Wouldn't you rather find a big star? Juan asked. I don't have any experience, Marco said. Someone good would jump to a better agent as soon as I got them exposure. I'm going to specialize. I may not find the highest earners, but if I get a large enough stable, we'll do all right. Juan smiled. Marco's first client was Tracy Fulbright. He and Juan were having afternoon tea when they heard her knocking. They both called, Come in, although neither rose to open the door. A short time later, a woman and her seeing-eye dog appeared. Sorry, Marco said. Juan went over quickly, took the woman's arm and led her to a chair. I came about your ad, Tracy said. She was extraordinarily thin. She had a very long nose. She accepted their offer of first one and then another ginger nut biscuit. Marco rubbed his belly, which even now, in his early thirties, was getting away from him. What do you do? he asked. Tracy had deep, green, piercing, glittering eyes, even though they didn't work. Because I'm blind, my other senses have improved to compensate, she said. I've heard about this. Your hearing is very good, is it? Marco asked. It wasn't a talent he thought he'd be able to exploit. I am a sniffer, Tracy said. 
Marco and Juan looked at her. You had a hamburger for lunch, she told Marco, and you, the woman, had Singapore noodles. It was mid-afternoon, and they'd long since tidied up their plates. You use Lux to wash your clothes. You last vacuumed four, no, five days ago. Impressive, said Marco. It was four days ago, sniffed Juan. That's nothing, Tracy said. She paused and breathed in deeply. Her eyes seemed to light up. You prefer carbon paper to photocopying, she told Juan. Juan nodded. And you're trying to give up cigarettes, she said to Marco. He already has, Juan said, possibly sounding a little triumphant. Marco looked to Juan. Sorry, I had one yesterday, I forgot to tell you. Juan looked away. You had a real Christmas tree last year. You moved in about six months before that. You painted with Dulux. Marco was looking at her intently. The lining boards of your house are cypress pine, but the frames are Oregon. She seemed to be looking at Marco and Juan intently, although they couldn't tell what she was seeing. Before the house was built, this area was mainly scribbly gum, wallabies, potteroos, a few wombats. You're not so far from the creek. You must mean the drain down the back, Juan said. Sickness. More than once. Juan scoffed at this. You can't smell bacteria, she said. I can smell decay. Pus, phlegm. Also the tears of children. They were all quiet then. After Tracy left, they had a discussion about her. Do you think you can find her a job? Juan asked. I'm sure the police could use her for something, Marco said. How do you think she does it? Juan asked. Marco shrugged. I don't think it's just overcompensation for being blind. I mean, as far as I'm aware, she's the only non-sighted person who can do something like that. Look at her body, he said. Maybe she has more than the usual amount of dog DNA. I'm not saying she's descended from dogs. Just that in the interplay of genetics that is the mixing pot of all babies, in her case maybe, some for, say, a greyhound, have become dominant. Juan nodded. Want a cup of tea? Marco asked. I'm going to vacuum, Juan said. <laughs> It didn't take long for Marco to find Tracy work in the forensics unit. It was his first placement, and although Tracy's pay wasn't huge, they celebrated the commission he claimed as proof the agency was at last a going concern. The next person to answer their ad was a man called David. He seemed shy when Juan led him to Marco's office. He refused their ginger nut biscuits. There was nothing to indicate what his skill might be. He didn't look dog-like, as Tracy had done. I'm really good at figure fours, he said. 
Marco looked at Juan, and she looked back. What's a figure for? Marco asked. A horsey. Marco was even more confused. You know how professional divers try and make the smallest splash possible when they enter the water? I do the opposite. I make big splashes. I make the biggest ones, actually. David had been banned from all the metropolitan swimming pools, so the next afternoon they caught the train to Windsor. They took a cab up George Street and walked down to where Windsor Bridge went across the Hawkesbury. Are you sure this is safe? Marco asked. I do it all the time, David said. They were about halfway across the river. The secret of a good horsey is in how you hold your knee and how you fling yourself back once you hit the water. Go on then, Juan said. She was nervous. She didn't like to be this deep in the western suburbs. David didn't waste any time. He climbed over the railing and jumped forward. They saw him clutch his right knee towards his chest and then he hit the water. It was like a fountain had exploded. Marco and Juan, standing on the footpath seven metres above the water, were saturated. Down in the river, Dave shouted out to them. You see what I mean? he asked. Marco found Dave work on the World Championship circuit as the comedy lead-in act for the diving events. He even appeared at a couple of Olympics. He was their first big earner. Other acts started to trickle in, relatively normal for the most part. Comedians, jugglers, tightrope walkers, even a few actors. We need more, Juan said to Marco. They were shopping, something she insisted he helped her with. Which jam should we get, she asked. Marmalade, he told her. No, I think strawberry, she said. We need to find someone who's unique. I mean, really unique. You can't be really unique, Juan pointed out. You're either unique or you're not. An absolute one-off, then, Marco said. Juan sighed. Which breakfast cereal, she asked. Cornflakes, Marco said. I think we'll get rice bubbles, Juan replied. The point is, the acts we have are okay, but if we're going to make it into the big leagues, we need more people like Tracy and Dave. What do you want for dinner tonight, steak or fish, Juan asked. Fish sounds good, Marco said. I think we'll get lamb, said Juan. had been writing a novel for well over a decade. At two o'clock every afternoon, she shut her office door and Marco would hear her typing. The noise of the keys hitting the paper was almost hypnotic. After an hour, she'd stop and then make them both jasmine tea. This was their routine six days a week. On Sundays, they'd find a film, the Valhalla and the Dandy, and occasionally the Academy Twin in Oxford Street were their usual cinemas. They rarely went to Hoyt's or Greater Union. Sometimes Juan would raise the subject of their relationship status. Marco knew she wanted him to marry her. Not yet, he'd say. 
When? she'd ask. You know why, he said. I've told you before. Fear of abandonment, she said. My father when I was young. My job at Walton's. My mother's unexpected death. I'll never abandon you, Juan whispered. Marco took her hand. He knew it hurt her that he hadn't proposed. He wondered what it would take for him to change. Every evening, after the ABC News, Juan set off on the ten-minute walk to her parents' house. Marco had ambitions of a novel of his own, but was better at finding excuses not to begin writing than he was at finding ones to start. He watched mindless shows on TV instead. A slow blue strobe surrounding him as he sat there alone. It wasn't a flicker he liked. His house was too quiet when Juan wasn't there, and he looked forward to her knock every morning at eight. She still knocked. He'd offered her a key more than once. As the years rolled on, Juan had to perform more and more maintenance on her trusty Olivetti. She could tension its ribbon spool with her eyes closed. She replaced the platen more than once. She became very good at it. It was rumoured her strike bars had the best alignment in the city. Juan had a friend called Ruby, also an ex-typing pool girl. She had a huge old Remington she'd bring over to Juan every time it had a problem. Often these were quick things to fix. A screw tightened here, a spring replaced there. More recently, there had been bigger problems, though. A cracked escapement, a roller knob that couldn't be tightened, or a broken carriage return. Juan had always thought Ruby finished her paragraphs much too enthusiastically. More people came to her for repairs. Juan started buying old units for spares. Eventually, they needed a room of their own. A move from refurbishment to sales was the logical next step. Marco had resisted at first. For him, it was an indication that the agency wasn't doing well. The sad truth, though, was that the agency wasn't doing well. The extra income Juan was able to provide kept them afloat. But the more money Juan brought in, the more guilt Marco felt at the state of their relationship. He didn't want to rely on her, but he knew he was relying on her. He knew it wasn't fair on her for them not to get married. But due to his inability to commit, he felt it wasn't fair on her if they did. Juan told him that he shouldn't be trapped by the ghosts of the past. Her practicality tried to brush aside his fears. She danced on his doubt and left him nowhere to run. Words couldn't fix him, though. He just wasn't ready. His fear was a logic that wasn't logical, but it was real just the same. While he brooded, she spent her days with oily fingers manipulating screws and springs and bringing back to life extinct machines. As Marco had predicted, every time they signed someone with real talent, they were snapped up by a more professional, larger agency. He struggled with their clients, all the time looking for new ones. There was a man who could teach anyone to smile. Marco placed him in a cancer ward but would organize him flights to disaster zones where necessary. One woman could pick the last running horse in any race she watched. Just horses, she explained, 
not people or greyhounds. Sports bet hadn't yet evolved to the point you could bet on anything. He found her a place with a pet food company. With the advent of the Sony Walkman came a woman who could interpret what someone was listening to by observing their body actions. The tiniest foot tap or finger flutter could tell her the name of the song. Marco found her a job with a music publisher. Unfortunately, she later had an affair with the CEO and Marco lost his commission. The next prospective client was a tiny Cambodian woman. What do you do? Marco asked. I make flat. Marco looked at Juan, then back to the woman, whose name was Ankali. What do you mean? he asked. The woman looked to a washing basket on the couch. I show, she said. She folded his clothing flatter than anything he'd seen. She had a real talent, Marco conceded. Bet she can't do fitted sheets, Juan sniffed. She went to the hall closet and pulled out two. Marco had been amazed at Juan's ability to fold fitted sheets. Something he didn't think was even possible outside of a factory until she'd showed him. She left one on the table as an example of her work and then unfolded the other and gave it to Ankali. Here, she said. Juan returned across the lounge room, but by the time she took four steps and went to sit down, Ankali had finished. Not only was the sheet folded, but it was a tenth of the thickness of Juan's version. That's amazing, Marco said. She probably doesn't have to wrestle with typewriter springs all day, Juan muttered. Ankali folded Marco's thick towels in half thirteen times and slid them under a door. The doona ended up as thin as a sheet. The newspaper may as well have been made of cigarette paper. Even Juan had to concede she was talented. How do you do it? Marco asked. Ankali scoffed. Is just folding, she said. Have you ever tried origami? Juan wanted to know. Ankali raised an eyebrow. She hadn't heard of it. This could be fun, said Marco. They asked Ankali to come back the next day. Marco went up to Gould's bookstore where he found a book on the art of Japanese paper folding. As expected in Gould's, it was in the Australian politics section between a volume on Billy Hughes and a 50 lamb casseroles recipe book. Ankali saw the pictures of the origami and her eyes widened. She quickly turned the pages of their Sydney Morning Herald into a crane, a swan, a helicopter and an echidna. She folded shape after shape. Juan had to leap forward to save the cryptic. Ankali reached the end of the origami book and looked disappointed for a second. But then her eyes lit up again. Once more she began to fold. But this time they were her own inventions. She created a miniature Sydney Harbour Bridge, a perfectly shaped soccer ball that Giotto could have drawn, and a 4D model of the universe. She smiled as the galaxies orbited each other, blinking in and out of existence. Marco placed Ankali with IKEA, where she worked in the packing development department for the rest of her life. The next person to arrive was an old school friend of Marco's called Gary Castle. Gazza! Marco exclaimed. I heard you were looking for people with unusual talents, Gary said.
Marco couldn't remember Gary being particularly gifted at anything. What have you got? Marco asked. I don't know if you'd call it an actual talent as such, Gary said. Go on, Marco insisted. Juan looked up from the crossword. Well, it's just that everything I cook tastes like peas. Peas? Marco asked. It's nothing, is it? Gary said. I'm probably just wasting your time. How much like peas? Juan asked. A hint of pea? Or the whole pea experience? Ah, all pea, Gary said. They took him to the kitchen and gave him a random sample of ingredients. Some pasta, a clove of garlic, half a bar of chocolate and an old avocado. Fifteen minutes of steaming, frying, boiling and mashing later, Gary held a spoon towards Marco's mouth. Aren't you going to try it first? Juan asked. You know, check it. Gary shook his head. No thanks, he said. I hate damn peas. Marco tasted the sample. Bloody hell, it is peas, he said. Juan tried it. It's almost more pea than pea, she said. What do you reckon, Gary asked. I reckon if I put you in a factory that made pea products, you'd be a winner, Marco said. Gary smiled. I never thought of that, he said. I'm sick of it, to be honest with you. I live on takeaway and it's sending me broke. Around this time, hipsters began to emerge in Sydney and Juan's typewriter business really picked up. They loved her old Remingtons and Olivetti's. She sold IBM Electrics to those who desperately desired to be different from the different. It wasn't long after this that they met the great Mantini. Perhaps met wasn't quite the right word. When he was about twelve, Marco had seen him busking at Circular Quay. He'd performed the standard tricks, birds appearing out his sleeves, a cane becoming a bunch of flowers, even pulling a rabbit from his hat. Then he asked for a volunteer from the crowd and selected Marco. Marco hadn't wanted to be chosen, but the crowd pushed him forward. He found himself being placed in a cupboard, although the magician referred to it as an armoire. Marco thought it smelled of jasmine. He couldn't hear what was going on outside. He waited a while in the dark. He got quite bored. He looked out the keyhole. It was strange. He thought he could see a forest. Then abruptly the door was opened and he was led forward into the street and the crowd was applauding. Apparently the magician had shown the crowd the inside of the cupboard and Marco hadn't been the cupboard. Marco spent days trying to find the magician again. He trudged up to the state library and trawled through old newspapers wanting to find out more. There were a few mentions of the magnificent Mantini in ads for various performances, a couple for the amazing Mantini and even one for the marvellous Mantini. The Herald had a small review of him making something disappear. It had impressed the normally curmudgeonly reviewer so much that he'd given the performance five stars. Once Marco thought he glimpsed the magician in George Street, but when he'd caught up with him, it was someone different. About ten years later, he swore he saw him sailing away on a ferry just as Marco had arrived at the wharf. 
Two years after that, he saw him heading down the escalator at Wynyard Station as he was halfway up another one. So when he answered the quiet knock on the front door one day and saw the elderly magician standing there, he was a little surprised. Mr. Mantini was with the last three significant things he had in the world. His magician's armoire, a trolley, and what appeared to be advanced dementia. It's Mr. Mantini, Marco shouted to Juan. The great Mantini, the magician corrected him. Marco led him inside. Juan struggled with the armoire. Fortunately, it was on the trolley and wasn't as heavy as it looked. Out of curiosity, she tried to open it, but couldn't. How can I help you? Marco asked. While he himself had slipped easily from XL to XXL, Mantini didn't appear to have put on an ounce. His hair, although distinguished grey, was as thick as Marco remembered. I'm looking for an agent, Mantini said. I saw your act once, Marco said. It was compelling, but it was many years ago. Doug Anderson gave you five stars, but that was a long time ago as well. What's your performance like these days? Mantini bowed, pulled an apple from behind a surprised Juan's ear, removed a tortoise from inside Marco's jacket, and took three goldfish out of his own mouth. So you'd like me to find you some shows? Marco asked. Shows? Mantini asked. Why would you be getting me shows at my age? I thought you wanted to find an agent, Marco said. Mantini looked puzzled. Marco looked to Juan, who looked back to Marco. Where do you live, Mr. Mantini? Juan asked. The great Mantini, the magician reminded her. Your address? Marco prompted. Tears filled Mantini's eyes. I've lost something, he said. Your wand? Juan asked. Your top hat? The white rabbit? She led him to the couch and he sat down. He looked around the room as if seeing it for the first time. He sighed. I've lost Gwen, he said. Juan reached over and took his hand. I put her in the cupboard, Mantini said. Juan let go very quickly. It's locked, she whispered to Marco. How long ago did you lose your, uh, wife, Marco asked. What are you talking about, Mantini said. Gwen's my assistant. Tall girl, buxom, redhead. Two days ago, I think it was two days ago, it could have been longer, it might have been much longer. She went into the cupboard for the act, and now I can't find her. Perhaps she came out and you didn't notice, Marco said. Mantini looked at him, but didn't say anything. Mr. Mantini, Juan asked. The great Mantini, the magician replied softly. He leant on the cushions next to him and quickly fell asleep. They put a rug over him and wheeled his cupboard into Marco's office. They examined it, even tipping it over at one stage to look underneath. It was covered with exotic paintings, but other than that it seemed like a normal cupboard. They knocked, tentatively at first, and then louder. No one answered. They lifted it up. Unless Gwen was very light, there was no one inside. It looks the same as the one he put me in all those years ago, Marco said. It's weird to say, but it even smells the same. 
The door wouldn't open no matter how hard they pulled on it. No point calling a locksmith, Juan said. There's nowhere to put a key. Do you think we should call the police? Marco asked. Maybe Gwen's been reported missing. Maybe Mr. Mantini has as well, Juan said. The great Mantini, Marco said. There was no one listed as missing who fitted the description of either of them. What should we do? Juan asked. By this time, Mantini had been sleeping for over an hour. Maybe when he wakes up, he'll tell us where he lives, Marco said. They tried to rouse him for dinner, but he pushed them away. Quite sternly, Marco thought. Juan wondered if it was safe to leave him on the lounge. What if he's a serial killer? He might murder you in the night, she said to Marco. He looks harmless, Marco said. Then where's Gwen, Juan said. In the end, they agreed to take turns and keep an eye on him. They were so used to Juan leaving after dinner. It was strange to have her staying after eight. They tried to watch TV, but it was difficult with the prostrate form of an elderly magician snoring between them. In the end, Juan went to bed, and Marco woke her around three for the second watch. When he came into the kitchen in the morning, he found her talking to the now-awake, bright-eyed Mantini. Between Juan and the magician, hanging strangely in the air, was an apple. Look at this, Juan said. All apples float, Mantini said scornfully. Until that bastard Newton taught them to obey gravity, they were all like dandelions. I'm not sure that's correct, Marco said. You've read every history book, have you? Mantini asked. A representative sample, Marco said. The apple dropped to the floor. Possibly it was something I imagined, Mantini said. Juan picked up the apple and looked at it. Nothing suspicious, she said to Marco. Mantini finished his coffee and farted loudly. Marco and Juan were not the kind of people who practiced public displays of flatulence. About Gwen? Juan asked after a while. Who's Gwen? Mantini asked. Your assistant, Marco said. Assistants are a dime a dozen. Cheaper in some parts of Morocco. I'll get another, Mantini said. He stood, scratched himself, and farted again. Just a polite perp this time. Off to work, he said. He loaded his amour onto the trolley and headed down the hallway. See you for dinner, he said. Yes, Mr. Mantini, Marco said. The great Mantini, Mantini and Juan chanted with unison. Mantini returned around six. He handed Juan ninety dollars. Today's takings, he said. Not many people around. I'll do better on the weekend. He went to the lounge. Is he going to stay? Marco asked. I don't know, Juan said. Ask him. Mantini was flicking through the TV channels. He stopped at a documentary on African wildlife. Uh, can we talk? Marco asked. Shh, 
Martini's head. Wildebeest in motion. They watched the spectacle of the majestic creatures stampeding over the savannah until the ad break. When Juan and Marco turned back to Mantini, he was already asleep. There was no more floating fruit the next morning. Mantini absent-mindedly ate some toast while going over the crossword. Will you be staying long? Marco asked. Is it a problem? Mantini said. I'll pay my way. It's a bit unusual, Marco said. I'm a strange person, Mantini replied. I do this kind of thing all the time. You'll get used to me soon enough, and when I leave unexpectedly, you'll miss me terribly. Juan arrived, and Mantini greeted her like a long-lost friend, hugging her and unexpectedly pulling a mouse out from behind her ear. Good trick, said Marco. What trick? Mantini asked. Before Juan could say anything, Mantini closed his fist over the mouse. When he opened it again, there was a bright red rose. Despite their concerns from this stranger in their midst, both Marco and Juan were undeniably impressed. Mantini said goodbye and left. I think he's growing on me, Marco said. Juan looked worried. It's the cupboard, she said. I thought I heard knocking coming from inside when Mr. Mantini wheeled it past me. The great Mantini, Marco replied absent-mindedly. What do we do? Marco asked. They looked down the empty hallway to the front door. Without thinking about it, Marco took Juan's hand. Without thinking about it, she smiled. As the days went on, they grew used to the great Mantini. He knew many jokes and riddles and kept them amused with his tricks. He seemed to like apples a lot. He could juggle seven at a time, taking a bite from one every revolution until it was gone. Then he'd start on another, then another, until he was no longer juggling, but just tossing a single apple up and down. His favorite trick was to toss the core up in the air and have it vanish just at the point they thought it should start to come back down. Juan took to staying over more often, always sleeping in the spare room. After Mantini nodded off, she and Marco would go to the office where they'd eat soft cheese and drink wine. They explored the armoire further. They spent hours trying to open it. They didn't want to put too much force on the handle in case they broke it. They looked at the back for screws they could undo but it just seemed like solid wood. Marco managed to prise off a single splinter, which he sent to the museum. The result surprised them. It was tree jade, timber that had, over millions of years, turned to stone. The amwaf can't be made of rock. It's not that heavy, Marco said. And feel it. That's wood. They explored every square centimetre of it with a magnifying glass. Other than the paintings on its surface, the only thing they could see was a tiny pictogram. They googled it. Nothing. They couldn't tell if it was Chinese, Japanese, or from somewhere else. Maybe the cupboard's a puzzle box, Marco said. You know, the ones you have to push this bit one way and slide another bit a different way to open? They moved their hands all over it, but nothing moved. 
Another evening, Juan suddenly grabbed Marco's hand and led him down the hall to where the armoire sat in its now customary corner. What if the answer's been staring us in the face the whole time, she asked him. What if the secret is revealed in the pictures? They looked at the paintings on it. Some trees, clouds, a mountain. Maybe it's a visual cipher, Juan said. They took photos, they googled more, they emailed. The trees were identified as apple trees. Not just any apple trees, though. Black diamond apple trees. Purple fruits, rumoured to be very nice to eat. Someone thought the mountains might be the Kin Range in Shangxi, but they admitted this was a guess based on a grandmother's fading memory. The clouds were cumulonimbus, pretty common everywhere. I think I've worked out what the pictograph means, Juan said one evening. You have, Marco said, sounding excited. Made in China, she answered. Marco looked across at her. She smiled and he smiled back. They stood in front of the cupboard. Then they both heard it. A woman crying. They kept staring at the cupboard for a long time. Marco answered the door the next morning. There was a woman called Carol there. He sat her in front of his desk in the office. After he'd called Juan in, he asked what she did. I don't know if you know, but in the old days they used to overload ships. Sometimes they'd sink in rough weather. They painted a safety line around the ship, Juan said. It's called the Plimsoll Line, Carol said. If you put on too much cargo and the line goes below the water, the ship can founder. Fascinating, I'm sure, Marco said. I see plimsoll lines on houses, Carol said. Marco and Juan thought about this for a moment. It means I can tell how long a relationship will last, Carol told them. So before people got married, you could tell if they'd be happy together. Marco asked. Carol nodded. Think of all the heartbreak that would save, Juan said. Think of all the heartbreak it would cause, Marco replied. Carol was the only person with a special skill who he refused to represent. That night, after Mantini went to sleep, Juan led Marco back to the armoire. Occam's razor, she said. Whatever is most likely to be right is probably right. That would mean that the cupboard really is magic. And that means Mantini is not a conjurer at all, but a genuine magician. Marco went to argue. He actually opened his mouth to speak, but then closed it again. It has to be, Juan said. Although it can't be. His trick with the apple, Marco said. You're saying it wasn't a trick? You've actually been inside the armoire, Juan said. Think back, what can you remember? 
Marco tried to picture that day when he was a boy, so many years before. The crowds around him, the sounds of the ferries coming and going, the warm afternoon, humid but not hot. You came towards the Amwar, Guan said. Mantini had drawn a circle of chalk on the footpath, Marco said. No one sat inside. This was his area. He invited you in. He actually took my hand. A threshold, Juan said. Marco nodded. What else, Juan asked. He smiled at me. I liked his smile. Then he talked to the audience. He made a joke or two. Think carefully now, Juan said. He led you towards the armoire. Yes, Marco remembered. I was standing in front of it. Close your eyes, Juan said. I want you to really think about it. What happened next? He opened the door and... Stop there, Juan told him. Go back a couple of steps. You said he opened the door. Yes, he opened it. How did he open it, Juan said. Marco strained to remember. I think he just turned the handle, he said. Go on. He took my hand again, Marco continued. His skin was dry and rough, a bit like sandpaper. He led me inside the armoire, but I wasn't worried. It was his eyes, I think. You've seen them. Yes, Juan said. I know what you mean. Not scary at all. I went inside, Marco said, and then he closed the door. It was dark. I was in there for a while. I've told you it smelled like jasmine, and after a while I, I looked out the keyhole. What? Juan asked. I looked out the keyhole. I saw some trees, Marco said. Hold up, Juan said. Did you say keyhole? Oh, my God, Marco said. They looked at the cupboard. A keyhole was plainly visible. It wasn't there before, Juan said. I swear it wasn't there before. Marco bent down and put his eye to it. It was dark inside. Juan tried to look through as well, but she too saw nothing. They became aware of a presence behind them. How did you make the keyhole appear? Mantini asked, obviously shocked. I don't know, Marco said. One minute it wasn't there, and the next it was. The magician pulled a key ring from his pocket. There must have been a hundred keys on it. Without even looking, he put one in the lock. The door opened smoothly. Mantini leapt forward. Once inside, he slammed the door shut. Marco looked to Juan. Then the door opened again. A woman stepped out. Her hair was long and frayed. Her eyes were wide. Her clothes were torn. She clutched at least a dozen purple apples to her chest. The door closed quickly again. You must be Gwen, Juan said. Would you like some tea? Gwen thought she'd been in the cupboard for about a month. She had worked as Mantini's assistant for three years. Until the last time, the cupboard trick had gone without a hitch. Then one day he hadn't opened the door. She'd knocked and shouted and eventually screamed. It was dark inside, but after a while her eyes had somehow grown used to it. She'd found an orchard. Some doves flew around. She'd presumed they were mantinis. White rabbits abounded. 
There were roses. She sat and waited, ate some apples. They were very tasty. She kept waiting. She had little choice but to eat more apples, and after a week or so, some rabbits and doves too. She started to think she'd never be let out. She thought she'd be trapped in the armoire forever. What was it like? Juan asked. It was no goddamn Narnia, that's for sure, Gwen said. Juan asked if she needed somewhere to stay. Gwen said she wanted to get as far away from the armoire and the magician as possible. Once more, Juan and Marco stared at the cupboard. Once more, it held something that was inaccessible. So near, if they could only open the door. Juan made a phone call. Who are you ringing, Marco asked. Tracy, Juan said. They hadn't seen the blind sniffer for some time. They sipped jasmine tea while Tracy told them about her new job in a cake factory. I tell them if the recipes have gone wrong. It's much nicer than working for the police and smelling all that crime. Juan told Tracy why they'd invited her. They took her to the armoire. She sniffed, sometimes gently, sometimes quite hard. Marco could see her nostrils twitching. Eventually, she took a step back. He's in there, she said. But a long way off, much further than he should be for something this size. It's magic, one said. It was the only explanation. Without a key, they had no way of accessing the great Mantini. They had no way of knowing whether he was lost somewhere inside his magic box, with his dementia growing worse. They didn't know if he was even alive. They took solace in the fact Tracy said he smelled happy. Perhaps inside there, where the magic was presumably strongest, he was fine. That evening, Marco and Juan sat on the lounge playing mahjong. It was strange to be there after the news without a sleeping magician between them. Tracy told me something, Juan said to Marco. Kong, she added, laying down some tiles. Marco smiled. Mantini is my father, isn't he? Marco said. Juan nodded. Tracy said you smelled the same, she said. It's not the first time he's played a disappearing trick on me, Marco said. Pang, he added, laying down more tiles. They played quietly for a while. The only sounds in the room were the clicks of the pieces, the ticks of the clock, the wheels of slow logic turning, and the soft realizations of emotions. Do you think Carol saw the plimsoll line on this house? Marco asked after a while. Juan nodded. I don't want to know how high it was, he told her. Neither do I, she said. Marco looked at her and smiled. She smiled back and laid down some tiles. Will you marry me, Juan? he said. Of course, she replied. He leant over and kissed her. Mahjong, she added. Huan stopped pretending to type a novel and began to write a real one. They left the armoire at the end of the hallway. After a few months, Huan realized it made her feel nervous, but there was nowhere else it would fit. She tried to paint it to match the color of the walls, but the paint kept falling off. She painted the walls around the cupboard instead. Mountains and clouds and apple trees with strange colored fruit. When she finished, the cupboard blended in perfectly. 
Eventually, although it was always there, it disappeared from view entirely. They went to Kayama for their honeymoon. That night they lay in each other's arms. Juan couldn't see it in the dark, but she could smell Marco was smiling. I'm not going to disappear, she told him. Of course you will. You will, or I will, he said. Even in the most loving of couples, one eventually abandons the other. The world is full of magic cupboards, you see. Each time someone walks out the door, they have the potential to leave forever, like a conjurer's trick gone wrong. Some just fade away, slowly snuffed flames. Others blaze like supernovas. Both kinds of exit are unsurprising, seeing that we're all made from the dust of old stars. This morning a woman sat on a bench overlooking the sea. Now she's gone. Memories of her like wisps of fog dispersing. A man we missed, even when he was present. His loss is recognized, but it's not unexpected. There are a million others who have gone as well, their bones stacked high like Cambodian walls. All their words fade to whispers as the wind takes them. Somewhere there's a pile of all the words in the world, a glimmering, desiccated stack. The wind strokes it. Some words fly away and are forgotten. The wind doesn't care. It knows it will be there long after. They lay close. He stroked her face. It's all a magic show, she whispered back. We must celebrate the arrival of the magic, the rabbits and the apples with the same strength that we recognize loss. They stayed wrapped around each other for a long time. That was Turiel Mora reading The Great Mantini. It was recorded in the studio of Blue Mountain Sound in Hazelbrook in the Blue Mountains, and it was mastered at King Sound Studios. The music was by Trevor Brown. Please check out his website. There's links from earmovies.com. That's it for the stories of season two. There's an interview with composer Trevor Brown as a bonus episode. 
Please come back next year for season three of their movies, Murder Ballads. <laughs> I'm Simon Luckhurst. Thanks for listening. Thank you.